scripture reading this morning will come from 1 Kings chapter 19 and uh, verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the New King James Version on your pew Bibles. That's on page 323. It's 1 Kings 19, 1 through 4. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that the Lord, he prayed to the Lord that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. If someone were to paint your portrait, what would you want it to look like? If someone was going to draw a picture and color it in and they were going to try to capture the essence of you, how would you want it to look? Is there anything you'd want changed? Throughout the years, rulers and kings and even presidents have had their own portraits painted. And those portraits have hung in hallways with large ornate frames and No matter what the person might have looked like in real life, the portraits always look pretty good, don't they? The person always looks courageous, maybe even heroic, confident. And obviously, those kinds of portraits inspire faith in followers. Probably the most famous quote ever given by someone who is having their portrait painted was given by Oliver Cromwell. And when his painter was sitting down to paint his portrait, Oliver Cromwell said these words, and I want to read these to you because I think they're interesting. He referred to his painter and he said, I desire that you would use all your skill to paint your picture truly like me and not flatter me at all. But remark all these roughness, pimples, warts, everything as you see me. Otherwise, I will never pay a farthing for it. You may even have heard the expression that came from this quote. When someone wants the entire picture, warts and all. That's what came from Cromwell's response. He wanted his portrait painted, warts and all. He didn't want anything cleaned up. He wanted all of those imperfections in there. And in a world where we look on magazine covers and television and movies and we see people wearing makeup and pictures that are airbrushed or computer enhanced and we see these perfect images, it's easy to forget what we look like in real life, warts and all. And when the Old Testament paints a picture of one of its heroes, we see everything. We see the entire person, warts and all. We see their faith and we also see their flaws. We see their courageousness and also their imperfections. Abraham is referred to in the New Testament as a friend of God. But when the Old Testament paints a picture of Abraham, we see not only the man who was able to leave his home and to go out to a place where God would lead him to take his family and rely wholly on God, we also see a a man who was a coward who lied. A man who even laughed in God's face when he was told he would have a child in his old age. You see, we see Abraham warts and all. And when the Old Testament paints a picture of David... They refer to him as a man after God's own heart. And when we're introduced to this man after God's own heart, we see him as someone who tackles a giant, Goliath, and through God's power, he's able to beat him. He's incredibly popular, and he's great at leading the people into battle, but we also see an older man who lets his desires get the best of him. Not only does he commit adultery, but in order to cover it up, he lies and even murders one of his closest soldiers, one of his mighty men. You see, we see David's picture 
And we see it warts and all. When we look at Elijah's portrait this morning, we are going to see the picture of someone who was very faithful, but also of someone who experienced brokenness. Someone who experienced hurt. And we're going to look at Elijah's journey through the valley this morning. And hopefully, from his journey, uh, we can learn something to aid us in our own journeys. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll spend most of our time in chapter 19 and 18 this morning. While you're turning there, let me tell you how excited we are that you're here especially. We have some family members here to honor our seniors. And we're excited to have you here. If there's any way we can help you, please let us know. Also want to remind all of us about Family Day coming up next Sunday. We're going to meet in here for Bible class and worship as Dr. Bud Lambert will be speaking to us. And I don't need to tell you what a good job he'll do in sharing with us messages about the family. So this is a great opportunity to bring your family with you to church. So don't miss that next week. As we begin in 1 Kings 19, we can't truly appreciate those first few verses unless we realize what happened in 1 Kings 18. You see, during this time, a man named Ahab was king. And Ahab was an evil man. In fact, a few chapters earlier, we see that he did than anyone before him. And not only that, but his wife named Jezebel had a great deal of control over what Ahab did. He took his orders from her. And Jezebel was pretty evil as well. In fact, that's why we don't see too many girls these days being named Jezebel. It's not really a name that uh, carries a positive connotation with it. She was evil. And so here we see Elijah facing off with these two and also with 450 false prophets. And he's trying to prove that the God he serves is the one true God. If you'd flip over to 1 Kings 18, we pick up in verse 19 and we see the message that Elijah gives to Ahab. He says, Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Asherah was another false goddess. And so Elijah is calling out these prophets and he's saying, I want you to call 450 prophets of Baal and 400 of these other false prophets and have them meet me on Mount Carmel with all Israel watching. Now we don't know what happened to the prophets of Asherah, but we do see that the prophets of Baal showed up. And what followed was a dramatic showdown as Elijah took an ox and also the prophets of Baal took an ox and they made an altar. And so the prophets of Baal went first and began to pray to Baal that he might send down fire and prove that he was the one true God. And so Elijah waits all morning. They pray and they're yelling and they're carrying on and nothing happens. And so about noon, Elijah comes over and says, well, maybe you should call a little bit louder. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he stepped aside for something. Maybe he can't hear you. They continue to call it's a plead with their God all afternoon. They even cut themselves according to a custom that they had, and nothing happens. Along about the late afternoon and early evening, Elijah sets out to tend to his altar. But before he prays to God to send down fire, he makes sure that four pitchers of water are filled and that the area around the altar is drenched, not just once, but three times. And then he prays to God. God sends down fire. And in one of the most inspiring scenes of a burnt offering in the Old Testament, we see God leave no room for doubt as to which Lord was the one and true King of creation. And not only that, but immediately after that takes place, we see Elijah pray to the Lord and the Lord sends rain. They'd been without rain for a great deal of time. And not only that, but as Ahab begins to ride back to Jezreel, the Lord is with Elijah. And Elijah starts to run. And the Lord gives him the power to run ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel. I know there are probably a a few of us uh, here, not not myself included, but those who've been uh, training for marathon running and participating in a marathon that uh, 
you could use some of that extra speed sometimes. You could use that little, that little boost of energy Elijah had as he was able to run ahead of Ahab's chariot. This was a mountaintop experience for Elijah. Surely Ahab and Jezebel would see the light. Surely they would understand what God to serve. But we see the very opposite of that happens as we pick up in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 19. We see that Jezebel isn't very happy with what's taking place. Actually, she sends out a warrant for Elijah's life. Not just for his capture, but for his life. She tells Elijah that if she catches him, he'll be dead. And so he begins to run. And in his journey through the valley, I think we can learn a few things that will help us in our own journeys. First of all, as Elijah's running through the valley, we see that valleys follow our victories. Valleys in our lives will always follow our victories. Our spiritual lows will always follow our spiritual mountaintop experiences. I've never been mountain climbing before, but from what I understand, uh, those who have been say that the most difficult part of mountain climbing isn't the climb up, but it's the climb down. In fact, supposedly more people are injured in the climb down the mountain than the climb up it. And if you think about it for a moment, it makes sense. When you're climbing up a mountain and you're focused on where you want to go, you're focused on your goal, and that concentration is evident, and you're pulling yourself up, and finally when you reach the top, words can't even describe how it looks when you see creation all around you. And then you begin the descent. And you've reached your goal, and you might not be as focused. You might not be concentrating as hard. You might be a little unguarded. It might be easy even to slip or to fall. We see that when we come down from our spiritual mountaintop experiences... Those are the times that can be the most trying on us spiritually. You know, Jesus experienced valleys right after the victories in his ministry. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? The scene that took place there as John the Baptist immersed him, and then the voice of God the Father called down from heaven, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. You have this wonderful scene where God the Father is present through his words, the Holy Spirit is present through the dove, and then Jesus is present as the Son of God in the flesh. Can you imagine what that must have been like? But do you know what happened immediately after that scene in Jesus' ministry? When we look at the first chapter of Mark, we read verses 9 through 11, we see what took place in verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the, dark, into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Immediately after one of the milestones that we see in Jesus' ministry, one of these glorious occasions where we see all three members of the Trinity there in one place, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and we know what took place there. That wasn't the only time during Jesus' ministry that the voice of God spoke from heaven. In fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration, just a few chapters later when we read in Mark chapter 9, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, as they, Peter and James and John were there and they saw Jesus, not only that, but they saw the vision of Moses, and of Elijah talking to Jesus, you remember that Peter woke up and he was excited. And Peter's philosophy about speaking in public was if you don't have anything to say, just try to say something. And so he immediately blurted out, well, let's build a, a tabernacle for all three of you. Let's set up a tent for all three of you. We can worship all three. And the voice of God spoke from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. Immediately after that happened, Jesus walked down from the mountain and you know what he walked into? He walked into the middle of an argument. The disciples that had been left behind were arguing over how to cast a demon out of a demon-possessed boy. And they couldn't do it. Jesus went straight from a mountain to a valley. And you'll remember that in the final week of his life, 
He entered into the city, much to the delight of individuals who were laying down palm branches, but he left carrying a cross, much to the delight of several other individuals. Our spiritual valleys will always follow our spiritual victories. And as soon as we have a spiritual mountaintop experience, that's when we need to be on our guard. Because that's when Satan can so often tempt us during our times in the valley. Have you ever been on a spiritual high before? It may have been on a mission trip for you. Maybe you just got back from El Salvador. Or maybe you're looking forward to our stateside mission trip. And after a week of doing nothing other than spreading the gospel, studying the Bible with people, and you're there with a group of people, you have the same focus, the same mission, and you're so excited. And after a week of that, you come home and you're just bursting uh, with excitement and with joy about what has taken place. And then you go to work on Monday. And all your tasks from the past week are pop on your desk and you spend Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday just trying to catch up and then Thursday and Friday trying to do the work you should have been doing all week long. It's easy to go straight from a spiritual mountaintop to a spiritual valley, isn't it? It may have been a, a camp or a retreat for you. And you get time to be away from the daily hectic schedule that you keep and you get time to be in nature and to really focus on God. And as you're there, uh, things are great and you're able to reflect on God's glory. But when you get back, and you start back with school or work. That time out in reflection on God's glory kind of fades away. Before you know it, you've gone from a mountaintop to a valley. I don't know about you, but I can identify with Elijah a lot more as he goes through the valley than I can with Elijah on the mountain. Which sounds more like you? At more time in our lives, are we like Elijah on the mountaintop where everything's going great, or are we like Elijah in the valley? I think it's good that when the Old Testament paints a picture of Elijah, we see this time in the valley. And we need to remember that valleys always follow our victories. Another thing we see from Elijah's journey through the valley is that valleys will affect our thinking. Valleys will affect our thinking. When we go through times of, of spiritual drought and we feel isolated or lonely, that will affect the way we think. Stop for just a moment and think about what has just happened in Elijah's life. With all of Israel's eyes on him, he was able to face off with 450 false prophets. And he's running from one woman. Now, she's a powerful woman, and she has people that are at her disposal that she can order to go after him, but don't you just think that if, if he would have stopped and thought about what had just happened, all of the prophets that he'd faced off against, surely the God who sent down fire in front of all of those prophets and all the people of Israel could take care of him against one woman, against one individual. But you see, when we go through the valley, sometimes we start to think irrationally, don't we? And we don't start to think with the kind of perspective that we should have. In fact, as Elijah finally collapses in exhaustion, in verse 4, under the tree, he requests that he might die. He was under a juniper tree. He was physically mentally, emotionally exhausted. And he requests that God take his life. You see, Elijah had been running for quite some time now. You couldn't get any further south and still stay in the land than Beersheba. He couldn't have run any further away. Not only that, but he left his servant and went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he just collapsed. And what I want us to understand is this isn't just a passive, oh, I'm tired, I've had a couple of hard days from Elijah. Listen to what Elijah says here. He says in verse 4, at the latter part, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. It's clear that Elijah isn't able to think rationally because he's at a point now where he's so exhausted, he's so drained, he's so burnt out that he asked the Lord to take his life. And he's not the only one who's done that. 
Moses, at a time in his leadership of the Israelites, would make a similar plea to the Lord. Jonah, after the people of Nineveh repented, asked that the Lord would take his life. Paul would even write that he despaired of his life when he was serving God. You see, Elijah isn't the only man of God that struggled with those kinds of thoughts. And what I think this shows us is that no matter how difficult, no matter how trying our valleys may be, Elijah experienced a time where he was so exhausted, so worn out, depressed and dejected that he asked that his life be taken. You might be here this morning experiencing an incredible trial. And it could be that none of us here can understand what you're going through. And if that's the case, please take courage from Elijah. Elijah was here. He knew that there were those who were out for blood, out to kill him. He knew that not many believed in the Lord. And he was at a point where he asked that the Lord would take his life. If you've ever felt so down that you can sympathize with Elijah, Elijah's journey through the valley will mean something special to you. It may be that no one else here can understand, but looking at Elijah's story, we see that Elijah can and also that God can. See, there's only room for one person under a juniper tree. Elijah was lonely. And what's interesting is that in Elijah's loneliness, he began to distance himself from the one person he had with him, his servant. He left his servant and went a day's journey into the wilderness. And isn't that typical of what we do when we walk through our valleys? If you've ever been lonely or you've felt isolated, isn't it easy to push other people away? To try to keep other people away from you? Which only increases the loneliness. But that's how Elijah felt. He continued to withdraw from anyone else around him. I think it's important that we see Elijah struggled so much because sometimes it's difficult for us to admit that we have these kinds of struggles. I want you to ask yourself how many times you've come to church on a Sunday morning and you've had a terrible weekend. Maybe something's happened in your family and you're grieving for a loss. Maybe it's an argument you've had with someone you love. Maybe it's a serious matter that's affecting one of your friends or family members. And you come in and what's the natural response when people start shaking hands? People love you, who care about you, who really want to do what's best for you. You start shaking hands and what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? How are you doing? I'm fine. I know I've done it. And there's nothing wrong with that response when we really mean it. But too often, I think we're, we're sending the message that to those who come in and see us that everybody who's a Christian is doing fine. And every week, we shake people's hands, we're doing fine. We could be hurting in, inside, but we're doing fine. Things could be terrible at home, but we're doing fine. Our friends could be struggling, but we're doing fine. And we're going to send the message, if we're not careful, that the church is for people who are doing fine. The church is for people who have it all together. And if you don't have it all together, then you can't come in, because everyone here is doing fine. We're all doing fine, so you need to go out and get it all together, and then when you come in and you're doing fine, then you can come back and be a part of us. The church is only for people who are doing fine. Aren't you glad that the church isn't only for those who are doing fine? Aren't you glad that, I mean, if the church was only for those who had it all together, I couldn't come every Sunday. I don't know about you. Could any of us come every week if the church was only for people who have it all together? In fact, the church is for those who are just the opposite. <laughs> for those who are, who are hurting who are struggling, and who have nowhere else to turn but the Lord. And that's the best place that we can turn. But you know, that principle plays itself out even as we come together every week and we offer God's invitation and we tell people that we would be willing to, to baptize them if they want to become Christians. We would be willing to pray with them if they're struggling. But it's so difficult, isn't it, to take the walk 
up an aisle when there are people all around you and you've told them every week that you're doing fine. And if I walk up, these people will know I'm not fine. These people will know I have problems. What are they going to think? What will people think of me if I admit I have problems? And so that fear keeps us glued to our seats, keeps our feet glued to the floor. And even when we want nothing more than to share what we're struggling with with other people, that fear keeps us planted in one place. I want you to take a moment and just look around. There are people in this auditorium. There are people in the fellowship hall. I can't imagine a better network of support, of health, and of Christian love than what we have right now. And as loving and as caring a place as this is, there's no better place to turn when you're having a problem. Think of a person in your mind, if something were to happen to you, who's the first person you'd call? If you had a problem at work, if you had a tragedy strike, who's the very first person you'd call? I would imagine nine times out of ten, that'll be a family member, won't it? It'll be someone you love, someone you care about. When something happens to me, the first person I want to call is, is one of my family members. And yet, we're so reluctant sometimes when we struggle, when we're walking through a valley, to call out to some of our spiritual family members. Shouldn't people that we go to church with be among the first that we let know when we struggle? Shouldn't our fellow Christians be among the first people that we talk to when we're having problems and yet it's so difficult? And we all struggle as we walk through that valley that Elijah did and we just want to push people away. If you're walking through a valley right now, sometimes when you feel like you're lonely and you feel like you're struggling and no one else knows, a crowd like this can be the loneliest place in the world. And you see people who are smiling and happy and seem to have it all together and you don't. None of us have it all together. And if you're struggling this morning and you just are aching to tell someone about how you feel, aching to share your journey through the valley with someone, there's no better place or time to do it than right now and today. When we look at Elijah's life, we see a man who seriously struggled, but was seriously aided by God. And as Christ's ambassadors right here in this room, as Christ's body on this earth, we can reach out and help those who want to share their journey, their struggle through the valley with us. Valleys can affect our thinking. And not only will they follow our victories and affect our thinking, but what we see with Elijah is that valleys will show us God's presence. Chapter 19 is actually a beautiful chapter as we continue to read. After, in verse 4, when he asks God to take his life, we see that the Lord not only lets him rest, but also provides bread for him and leads him into a 40 days and 40 night journey to Horeb, the mountain of God. And here in verse 9, in 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah and he's in a cave. Look at the progression here. He's gone from the mountaintop to the juniper tree and now to a cave. Forty days and forty nights away from anyone around. And God calls him out of that cave of, of isolation, that cave of loneliness. And look what he says in verse 9. At the latter part, God said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And listen to Elijah's response. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. All the other prophets are dead. I am the only one, Lord, who is left for you. And in verse 11, God said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord is passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord is not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire, sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of a cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? You see, God wasn't in the wind or the fire or the earthquake. He was in the sound of a gentle blowing. There are a lot of loud voices going on around us. And as we go through life, we have people shouting at us from different directions. We have contrasting messages flying at us. But there's a small, still voice of the Lord that's letting His presence be known. You know, one of the greatest ways that we can combat loneliness in our own lives is to realize that we might be miles away from any other human being, but we're not far from God. Do you notice that God was just as close to Elijah when he was in the valley as he was when he was on the mountain? God was still there. And it didn't matter how many people were far away from Elijah. It didn't matter how many people were left, how many had been killed. God was still with Elijah. And this morning, you might not feel like you can confide in anyone with your journey through the valley. Maybe your journey through the valley is so different than anyone's around, but God knows what it's like. And God's with you. And you might feel like you're here this morning isolated from everyone else in this room, emotionally. Maybe even, even physically with the way you've been living, but you're not isolated from God. I would be lying to you if I said that as a Christian, we never have to walk through these kinds of valleys. But the great message of Christianity is that we never have to walk through a valley like this one by ourselves. We never have to walk through a valley like Elijah without knowledge that God is right there with us. You know, God provided for Elijah even when Elijah didn't know it. He would go on to tell Elijah that Elijah wasn't the only one left. In fact, as we continue to read, Elijah gives that same response to him. And then in verse 15, the Lord gives him specific instructions. Look at verse 18. God says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There were 7,000 who hadn't bowed down to Baal. Elijah didn't know about them, but God had provided for him. Not only that, but God provides Elisha, a young prophet that he would take under his wing, and eventually Elisha would replace Elijah, doing God's work. Elijah would have someone to confide in, a friend to be there for. God was providing for Elijah, even though he didn't know it. And as we walk through the valley this morning, God is providing for us. We may not know it, but the small, still voice of the Lord calls to us. Valleys will always follow our victories. Any spiritual mountaintop we have, that peak will be followed by a valley that's equally as low. And when you're on a peak, it's easy to see all the possibilities around you, but when you're walking through a valley, all you can see is what's right in front of you. Valleys will follow our victories. We need to expect it. We also need to realize that valleys will affect our thinking. As I struggle with loneliness and grapple with life's problems, I'm not going to be thinking clearly. And sometimes that translates into not taking advantage of a Christian family that would love nothing more than to pray for and to help you. And thirdly, we see that valleys show us God's presence. Maybe not in an earthquake, or maybe not in a fire, but in the sound of a gentle blowing, a small, still voice, God speaks to us. And this morning... I don't know where you are. You might be on the spiritual mountaintop. You may be sitting under the juniper tree, exhausted, worn out, no idea what to do next. You might be in a cave of isolation, away from all of your friends, a 40-day journey from anyone you know. It doesn't matter where you are, the small, still voice of the Lord calls. Calls through His Word. We all have to walk through our valleys, but none of us have to be there alone. And this morning is... We all struggle with our own personal valleys, our own personal difficulties. I'd like to just plead with you. If there's some action you want to take this morning, 
If there's something you want to do to change your situation, please don't look at this group of people as those who have it all together, who are all doing fine. I think all of us know that none of us are doing fine. None of us have it all together. We are a people who have struggled with our own valleys. We are people who have been broken, but God has restored us. And we would love nothing more than to pray with and to minister to you. In a moment, we're going to sing a song and ask the Lord to be with us. One of the most powerful evidences of God's grace to us is that He was with Elijah. You see, He took Elijah Warts and all. We all have imperfections. As much as we'd like to airbrush or touch them up, they're still there. But you know what? Our imperfections don't have to stop us from taking advantage of the perfect grace given by a perfect Lord. Once we submit our will to His and are buried with Him in baptism, we walk in a new life and we take advantage of that perfection. It doesn't matter what valley you're walking through. There is a friend who understands. There is a friend who loves you. And there is a friend who is calling you with that small, still voice. He's calling right now. And if you want to respond to that call, there's no better time than now to do so as we sing together. Let's stand.